The topic at hand is authority. In particular, how do we function with and underneath the government? Uh, and so what we need to remember is that we're in the section called Be Transformed. And so Paul has said uh, through Romans chapter 1 through 11, here's the, the gravity and the goodness and the awesomeness of the gospel through Jesus. And then he says in chapter 12, now because of that, the only logical thing that you can do, if you really believe this, the only thing that you can do is to offer your whole self back to God. You die so that you can live. And how you accomplish that is that you're, you be transformed as a person by the gospel through the renewing of your mind. We said that what that means is that you bring the gospel to bear on every situation of life. That's how you renew your mind. Renewed marriage is because of the gospel. Renewed parenting is because of the gospel. Renewed citizenship, we'll talk about this morning, is because of the gospel. Now, if it needs to be renewed and Paul's bringing it up, then logically we can assume that the status quo is unacceptable as followers of Jesus. So we'll find out here in a second as we read this passage together that the the gospel-transformed, mind-renewed view of authority is to be subject to it. Why is that a transformed view? Because that is the opposite of how we're wired, isn't it? We'll talk about that in a second. Let me read this with you. Romans chapter 13. Starting in verse 1. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except that which God has established. Authorities that exist have been established by God. Paul is quite universal when he makes this statement, is he not? Let everyone, literally translation there would be every soul. So in other words, every single human being, follower of Jesus or not, subject to their governing authorities. Not subject to good governing authorities. Not subject to semi-good governing authorities. Subject to their authorities. Now mind you, when Paul is writing this, He is writing this to the church in Rome and the Emperor Nero has just come to power who will become the bloodiest emperor of the Roman Empire as it comes to Christians. Many of the people in this church are going to lose their life because of this emperor. And Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, be subject to him. Now amazing, isn't it? Why is it gospel transformed to be subject to authority? Uh, because what we find out from the very beginning of Scripture is that our inclination, or the sinfulness in us, disposes us to want to rule ourselves. Right? So if we were disposed to self-rule, self-authority, then the opposite of that would be to be subject to someone else. Right? It would not come naturally to us, as it were. If it didn't come naturally to Adam and Eve to be subject to the good and perfect God of this universe, how will it come naturally to us to be subject to fallen, finite, human authority in this earth? It's not natural. In fact, we find ourselves rebelling against it all the time. Now, you have to understand what Paul's talking here. He certainly has the specific flavor of government, yet he's speaking and using the word authority. So every authority has its place in this, right? Parental authority over children. 
The one thing that children teach us from the get-go is how to rebel against authority, right? Because it just is natural to us. Spiritual authority in the church, the authority of the pastor and the elders of the church and those who oversee the church uh, having authority over the people here. We know in America that people don't function under spiritual authority very well. If things don't go right, they find another church, right? They go somewhere where it's more comfortable, where someone doesn't uh, expose their sin and confront them about it, uh, where, where they can do what they want to do and they can't come to consensus, right? It's the opposite. We're naturally disposed to rebel against spiritual authority, civil and governmental authority. We're naturally disposed. It, it, it's hysterical to me that um, no matter who comes to power, be it to run a city or a country, we always find in them the things we dislike. <laughs> because we are naturally disposed to rebel against authority, right? There's always something. You might love someone 98% of the time, but that 2%, it really sticks in your crawl, doesn't it? And because we just think if I was doing it, it would be better. I mean, we may never publicly verbalize that, but that's the reality of the sin in us and or part of the human disposition, the human image of God to control, right? To rule, to, uh, because this is what God says to Adam and Eve, have authority over the ground, have rule over it. And then when sin comes in, he says, oh, wait a minute, I'm taking you back, right? So there's the natural tendency for us, we need to be honest about this together, in every aspect of life, to want to rebel against authority, to want to self-rule, and therefore, we need a gospel-transformed view of authority. One that says, I will be subject to the authorities over me. As a child, subject to our parents. As an employee, subject to our employers. As a citizen, subject to the authorities over us. As, as a person in a church, subject to the spiritual authority that is established over us in the local church and in the global church. Without the gospel, we can't do this. It's impossible. It's unnatural. It doesn't feel right. It doesn't make sense to us. But when the gospel infuses us, when we really bring the gospel to bear in this situation, there's transformation. It's a radically different picture of authority. So Paul's message, be subject to authority. The second thing he wants to tell us is his spiritual rationale for this, right? And so he gives us three things. The first thing we started to read, and I paused because I want to go through these in reading the scripture together. The first thing is that we live, uh, we live in a world, but we live under a creator God who is sovereign. The word sovereign means that uh, what he says goes. What he wills is the end. God's intentions come to pass, right? So the will that God exerts in the world is unstoppable. Now you might say, well, experience, you experience sin in your life, you experience depravity in this world, we experience disease and death in this world. Certainly these aren't God's intentions. We'll understand that there is a balance in the world between the, the free will of man and the sovereignty of God. It is a battle that humans, uh, theologians, have debated uh, since the, the people were writing scriptures back in the day, and one that we will never solve. We can have good, uh, good conversations about it another time, 
But to talk about those issues here is so difficult because it's so nuanced and so complex. The reality is, as Paul wants us to understand it, is that in fact the authority over us is established by God himself. And therefore, the first rationale for being subject to it is, if you rebel against it, Paul says, you quite literally rebel against God himself. Listen to him. Uh, There is no authority, this is the end of verse 1 again, no authority except that which God has established. Listen to that, right? There is no authority except that which God has established. Now, you might look at different authorities in your life and say, there's no way God established this. Well, there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. To rebel against authority is to rebel against God himself. Do we believe that God is sovereign or do we not? If we do, then we've understood that those who come to power are instituted by God and therefore we're called to be subject to him. It does not mean that those who come to power are perfect. It does not mean that those who come to power are more good than they are bad. It does mean that God is accomplishing his purposes through it somehow, some way. What we know, this is a hard truth to realize, church, is that sometimes really bad people come to power that in a strange way sparks the dynamic move of the kingdom of God. Remember in the Old Testament when, um, Paul, when God is talking to Moses and to Pharaoh and basically saying that God is hardening the heart of Pharaoh and that fact God has risen Pharaoh uh, to power so that the power of God might be shown in his midst. Right? The exodus doesn't happen without the tyrannical rule of Pharaoh the unbelievable power of God in the Exodus through which we understand the whole paradigm of the redemption that we have in the Gospel through Jesus Christ doesn't happen without the tyrannical rule of Pharaoh. The unbelievable spread of the Christian faith in the early church doesn't happen without tyrannical rulers in the Roman Empire and even in the Jewish state, right? It says in the book of Acts that the church would have never left Jerusalem unless they were persecuted and they spread. And what we find out is where the church is growing most is in places where difficult leadership is established over them because they actually have to believe the things that God has called them to believe. They actually have to believe the songs that we just sung this morning. They actually have to cling to it and they are actually gospel people rather than citizens of a land and therefore the kingdom comes in power and it moves forward. So rather than look at the circumstances of the leader who's over us, what we say is, in the sovereignty of God, this comes to pass, and his intentions will be accomplished through it. And so I hold tight to the gospel, and we move forward. And friends, this comes from no other place than Jesus himself. Do you remember the story of Jesus before Pilate? Unbelievable. So in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Uh, Jesus only says one or two words to Pilate. Remember, and Pilate's really irritated by this. Imagine this. Imagine if you're talking uh, to your child and asking him a million questions and he's just staring at you and not answering. Imagine the anger that would build up in you, right? It just builds and builds and builds and builds. 
So basically, Pilate says to Jesus, are you a king? And Jesus says, you said it. Right? And that's it. He won't say anything else. But if you turn to the Gospel of John, suddenly Jesus has other words for Pilate. And Pilate's basically saying to Jesus, don't you know the authority that I have over you? I can kill you. And Jesus says to Pilate, who will issue his execution order, you only have authority over me because God has given it to you. This is in Paul's mind when he writes this. The very ruler who will execute the Son of God and Jesus says to him, God has given you authority to accomplish in me what his intentions are. That is a gospel-transformed view of authority. Who of us sitting here would say that, right? I would be weaseling my way out of that situation. Well, I'm a king, certainly, but let me explain it to you. It's not a physical kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom. There's no need for you to kill me. I'm no threat to you, right? He says, I have authority to kill you. And Jesus basically says, yeah, you do. Go ahead. Right? Unbelievable. But he's subject to the sovereignty of God because in that moment, not only is he saying that that, that God is sovereign in who he raises up, but that God is also sovereign in how who he raises up affects my existence. Gospel-transformed view of authority says we're subject to it. Why? Because God is sovereign. My God will come through always, right? God is sovereign. Second thing, believe it or not, authority is established to uphold good and deter evil. That's the reason it exists. It is not always good at this. It is certainly not perfect because there are fallen, finite human beings running the show. So whether it be national leadership, local leadership, church leadership, parental leadership, it ain't always going to be perfect. But the reason God establishes it is to uphold evil, or excuse me, yeah, uphold evil, to uphold good and to deter evil. Think about it in our world. We hold on to the 2% of things we think the government is evil because they do this. But think of all the ways in which they uphold good and deter evil. Think of all the ways as a parent you uphold good and deter evil, even though your kids are so frustrated by you. Think of it in spiritual leadership. Listen to what Paul says in verse 3. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right. But those who do wrong, do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right. And you'll be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities. Second reason of Paul's rationale, and this is true when you look at it in the totality, that authority is established over us to uphold good and to deter evil. And in many ways it's accomplished. Totally imperfectly, not always right, fallen, finite human beings leading all aspects of authority. And yet, this is God's intention. And if we were to look at it this way, it's a gospel-transformed view of it. That there actually is blessing in authority. And not simply cursing, or restraint, or restriction, or strictness, or things that I don't need, or, or guiding me in a path that I don't believe. 
Third thing, and I, I love this. Verse 5. Therefore, it's necessary for you to submit to authorities. He's basically, he said basically there at the end of that, um, if you do wrong, basically if you don't submit to authority, uh, and he's speaking here of government authority, certainly not parental authority, and very certainly not spiritual authority, uh, because they wield the sword, right? So you better obey them, he basically says, otherwise you're going to die. You know, and this was a real existence in that day that is not so much an existence in our day. But we still understand that to disobey authority, there's consequence for it. We see it every day on the news. But listen to this. Now he cuts to the heart of the matter. Not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. Now that's a renewed mind. That actually in your innermost being, your inner voice, as it were, is telling you, this is the right thing to do. The flesh in us says that you could do better, that you should rule your own life, that you should be an authority, that this is a restriction that you don't deserve. But the voice of the Spirit and the conscience in you, if you are a true follower of Jesus, if your mind is being renewed, actually says the right thing to do is to live in subjection and submission to the authority over us. What Paul is saying is that if you're a follower of Jesus, that voice exists in you, so don't cloud it out. Don't build walls around it. Listen to it and follow it. So if Paul has given us his command to submit to authority, and then he's given us his rationale, these three sort of spiritual reasons for it, What we need to understand then is the basis for this. Where does this all come from? What is all this government authority stuff about anyway? Where does Paul get his teaching from? Remember Matthew chapter 22 when uh, it's leading up to the the, um, crucifixion of Jesus and the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders are doing anything they can to catch Jesus in a situation so that they'll have just cause to get rid of him? Remember? All this stuff is happening. And they devise this plan where they say, we're going to ask Jesus whether or not we should pay tax to the Romans. Perfect plan. What a brilliant question. Because every Jew hated this, right? Like, you don't like April 15th, but you don't understand. For the Jewish people to give taxes to the Romans was the greatest disgrace. It was disgusting to them. They hated every part of it, from the fact that they had to pay and the coins that that bore the image of Caesar, and they saw that as, as repulsive, to the fact that there was an occupying force in their land who now their earnings were going to to support, right? They hated it. So if Jesus were to answer this question and say, of course you've got to pay taxes, the Jews are going to hate him. They're going to rise up against him, and they're going to, they're going to depart from him. However, If Jesus answers the question and says, no, you can't pay the tax, of course not. That's a silly thing to do. Now the Romans are going to have real issue with what's going on, right? And the Romans are going to say, wait a minute, how can you rebel against our authority? And they're going to imprison them and call them forth, and there's going to be charges brought against them and so forth and so on. So Jesus really is caught in the midst of a great trap, is he not? 
How are you going to answer this one, Jesus? You're going to pick a side, as it were, right? It's when your two children come to you, if you have two children, um, or your three children, or four children, or however it is, and they each have one particular side of an issue. And there appears to be no middle ground. And you're forced to choose one side or the other. And you know that whoever you don't choose is going to rise up, right? Here's Jesus. And yet, as Jesus always does, handles it, it masterfully. Do you remember what he says to them? He says, show me the coin that you pay the tax with. And they produce a denarius. And on the front of the denarius is a picture of Caesar. And on the back of the denarius is a picture of a Roman god. And he says to them, whose picture is on this coin? And they say, well, of course, it's Caesar's picture on this coin. And then Jesus says to them, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And perhaps then he says, flip the coin to the other side. And it's a picture of the god. And he says, and give to God what is God's. And the Pharisees were miffed because he had actually answered the question appeasing both places and actually answered it in a perfect way and there was no accusation against him. And Paul is quite literally pooling on this. How do we know? Because look in verse 6. He says, this is also why you need to pay taxes. Right? There he goes, right into it. For authorities are God's servants. This whole thing is drawn from this statement of Jesus that you give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. What is he saying other than you need to pay your taxes? Which is a natural application and a true application. You're a citizen, you pay your taxes, that's the way it goes, right? Rulers are are an authority over you. But what is Jesus really getting at? What's the heart of the issue? Because we need more than just commands from God that you have to do something. We need a renewed mind. We need a transformed heart. This is the reality of what's going on here, right? What is Jesus really saying when he says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's? Let me suggest two things. Two things. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. What is Caesar's? Obedience. Give obedience to Caesar. But you give service to God. Right? You give obedience to Caesar. The laws that are established, you follow them. The taxes that, that are, are put over, you pay them. Right? You be a good citizen in the Roman Empire, as it were. You give to Caesar obedience. But you give to God service. Your life is given to God. Your money is given to pay taxes. Your heart is given to the mission of God. The momentary volition is given to obedience to laws. Right? Service is way bigger than obedience. Isn't it? That the fullness of ourselves is given to accomplishing the mission that God has given us. That service. In the meantime, we obey. Second thing, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Honor and respect. You might say, well, honor and respect. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Um, In 1 Peter, Peter makes this statement. Honor the king. Right? He does not say honor the good king. He does not say honor the king sometimes when he makes you happy. He does not say honor the king only when he follows God. 
He says, honor the king. And what's more profound about this is 1 Peter is not written to a select group. It's actually written to the diaspora of Jews. Diaspora means the spread out, the sent out. So Jews in every single place around the empire. So it wasn't just one king. It was whoever's king was established over them, right? Honor the king. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Honor and respect. Absolutely you honor and respect those who are in authority over you. Always. But give to God what is God's. Worship. I honor those who are in authority over me, but I bow down before God. I respect those who are in authority over me, but my adoration is given to God alone. Do you see the difference? Do you see the profound way in which we're called to live in subjection to the authority over us, but not in such a way that it derails us from the greater call of living in total subjection to God? We obey human authority, but we serve the living God. We honor and respect human authority but we worship Creator God alone. Here's a natural question that comes from this. Well, when is it right then? And we can't get into all kinds of philosophical arguments this morning, though they interest me greatly. When is it okay to disobey authority? Right? This is the natural question that is, has risen up in your mind already because I know you. You're like me. You're bent towards rebellion, Right? You want to find the way, the path that you can carve out where you can say, okay, they've done that, now I don't have to obey them. Well, quite naturally, if we accept that understanding of give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's, then the only time we're we're allowed to disobey human authority over us is when human authority takes the step from human authority to divine authority. Right? In other words, when human authority disables us from living out our call to serve God. When obedience to human authority demands that we not live our service out to God. In other words, in the book of Acts, when they tell the apostles, listen, we're going to let you go, but you need to stop talking about this Jesus, all right? And Peter and the apostles say, what do you mean? We can't stop talking about him. We're never going to stop talking about him. And so it is for us. Human authority will never stop us from living out our call to be ambassadors of the kingdom of God in word and in deed. It's not just our ability to speak the gospel, but it's our ability to live the gospel. And in the same way, we disobey human authority when they take the step from human authority to divine authority and demand some form of worship of themselves rather than honor and respect. We don't honor and respect human authority in such a way that it takes the place of our worship of God. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would not bow down to their Babylonian gods. Why? Because authority at that point had taken the step from honor and respect to worship. These are the times when we stand in disobedience. Let me give you a very uh, a classic example of this. Perhaps you've heard this story before. Perhaps you haven't. Dietrich Bonhoeffer. 
Uh, perhaps you've heard his name. He's written all kinds of great books, Cost of Discipleship, Life Together. Uh, he lived during World War II and was a German pastor and uh, took really important stands against what was happening in Germany. And he actually was in the United States pastoring a church. And when Nazism rose up and was growing in power, he actually left the United States to go back to Germany to help support the church there and give leadership to it and stand for the things that are right. Because what we know is many churches in Germany were acquiescing to Nazi empowerment. So Bonhoeffer took a stand for valuing humanity, valuing Jewish life, valuing ethnic life. Bonhoeffer took a stand for the values of Christian life. Right, right, and right. Right to disobey. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was executed for his stance. But if you read history, he was not executed for speaking out against Nazi authority. He was not executed for standing up for Jewish values of Jewish life and ethnic life. He was executed for being part of a plot to try to assassinate Adolf Hitler. Friends, the cold, hard truth of the matter is, at that point, he lived in disobedience to the commands of God. It's sometimes right to stand in disobedience, but to be an accomplice to murder, even as horrific as the leadership was, is to disobey the command of God. There's time and place to disobey, but the time and place is narrow only when human authority takes the, st- the step to divine authority. And if it costs you your life, so be it. I would think the cold truth, unfortunately, for most of us is we're willing to take stands on almost anything other than the two things we ought to take stands for. And if, the, if it came to us taking stands for our ability to speak the truth, and to live the kingdom values of the gospel, and or to worship God alone, those would be things we might acquiesce to. Isn't it? This is so unfortunate. But really it's true. And so we need to think hard and fast about this. What does it mean to live this way? Maybe another way to think about this too. (laughs) I I love Paul's statement here about, listen, you need to obey authority because they wield the sword, right? Right? All the images that come to that are strange and yet fascinating. And perhaps one of Paul's thoughts here is, listen, God has given you a great commission on your life. No matter what your occupation is, no matter what your individual calling is, we all universally, as followers of Jesus, share the call to make disciples of Jesus. It is the greatest call in human history. And you share it. Calls on your life. And so if you don't choose your battles wisely with authority over you, you can be extinguished and not able to fulfill that call, right? You've ever heard the mantra, live to fight another day? Maybe this is in Paul's mind when he's talking about this. We take such strong stands on things that are secondary matters to the gospel, and for some of us that ruins our all capacity to accomplish the greater thing, which is the gospel. 
Whether that taking that stand costs us our life or costs us our testimony or costs us our influence. His government wields the sword. Authority wields the sword. Let me give you this example from history. Um, I'm fascinated by the Civil War and I love the Battle of Gettysburg. At the time of the Battle of Gettysburg, the Union Army was not doing well. And the Southern Army was looking for ways to push into Northern territory and Gettysburg was a great place and if they won there, they could swing right, head towards D.C. and maybe end this thing and have a, a divided nation. And so they meet at Gettysburg, and the first three days happen, and there's plenty of interesting stuff there. But basically, the Union holds them off, holds the high ground, and repels the invasion. And Lee is behind, Robert Lee, uh, who's, who's commanding the, the Confederate, the, the Southern Army, is behind the lines, and he's um, organizing a massive invasion at the center of the Union lines. Uh, history has now called it Pickett's Charge. Have you heard that phrase before? Uh, actually, it was way more than just Pickett. It was tons of men coming right to the center. And if you've ever been to the, ba- the battlefield at Gettysburg, what you know is they made basically a mile-long march in wide-open fields, completely open to, to artillery that was blowing them to pieces. All of the, the high commanders of Robert E. Lee's army counseled him against this said, this is not a good idea. Let's retreat and live to fight another day. Lee insisted they had to have this victory. And so he pushed all these men, and they were obliterated in that field. And the whole tide of the war was turned. Think about it. Is every hill worth dying on? Is every victory a necessity? How will your all-in in one place affect the greater cause of accomplishing our commission to make disciples in this world? Yeah. Paul says live in subjection to human authority. So, let me just pause. and Can I give you four things from the depth of my heart? And I apologize, we're running a little bit long on time here. But, but these are so, this is so important. I, I just really believe these things, and I feel like we need to hear them this morning. Four, th- four practical implications from this reality. If you've tracked with me and you're nodding and you agree with all this, here are four practical implications that come from this. The first is, and, and these all revolve around the government now, because I'm telling you, the church has really messed this up. All right? The first is, the government cannot save you. Okay? The government cannot save you. At the end of the day, here's the question. Where is your hope? Is your hope in Creator God who established the universe and is present with you through it? Or is your hope in human authority? And all of us at that would pause and say, well, of course, my hope is in God. But practically, how do you live? Just be honest for a moment. Practically, how do you live? So many of us live with our hope in human authority. How do I know? Because I've talked to you after elections, right? When you're at the bottom of the barrel, 
and you feel like you can't go on because an election has happened, right? Because I've talked to you after a certain legislation has passed, be it Republican or Democrat or Independent or whatever, and you're on the opposite side of it, and you feel like the world is coming to an end. And yet, the Scriptures tell us a quite different story. So where is your hope? Government can't save you. Government is meant to uphold good and deter evil, and they're imperfect at it, but they're doing their best. It cannot save you. So stop hoping in it. Quit it. It's worthless. Second thing. We cannot legislate faith. Okay? We've missed the boat on this one drastically. I understand the history of politics. It's interesting. It's whatever. For the longest time, evangelical Christianity, as it were, was just totally uninvolved. And then there was this great push in the 80s to, to get the church involved in this stuff. And that's a good thing. We need to, we'll talk about this in a minute, to, to be good citizens. But what happened, as is dangerous with anything else, is that one took the other's place, right? And instead of being people who are fully given to the gospel, we became political animals who are fully giving to attempt to, to legislate a Christian nation, which is of no use to us, right? Even if we pass the best laws, even if we pass laws that God would love every single one of them and name whatever they are, that does not create morality, let alone salvation in any human soul. So how much time, how much resources, how much effort have we individually and as a church wasted in trying to legislate faith in this world? What if those, that time and resources and effort we're giving to our real call to make disciples and to propagate the gospel in this world? How radically different would the Christian impact in this world be? Now we're simply known as right-wing lobbyists. What if we were actually known as God-centered gospel ambassadors? We've got this so wrong. Listen, I'm not telling you that attempting to have good laws passed is wrong, or even that if you are so called to actually run for political office is wrong. I think that's great and great, and I support it. Of course we want morality. Of course we want good in this world. Of course we want laws that uphold God's standards. But just establishing them will not create what God intends for this world. The heart of God is not a code of laws that line up with Scripture. The heart of God is the salvation of all mankind. How much time and effort have we wasted? And again, please let me pause and hear me well. I am not suggesting that supporting laws, good causes, candidates, even supporting them financially is a bad thing. The question goes right back to what I said before. What are you hoping in? Do you think that legislation will change our world Or do you believe the gospel will change our world? We need a gospel-transformed view of authority. We desperately need a gospel-transformed view of authority. The third thing, 
and now I may be stepping on some toes if I haven't already. I apologize, but please hear this well. Adding politics or government to Christian faith in even the smallest way is accepting a heretical gospel. Adding politics or government to Christian faith in even the smallest way is accepting and embracing a heretical gospel. You heard me right, a heretical gospel. Friends, in the church of Jesus Christ, there is no political litmus tests. You do not have to line up in some sense of social and, and, and um, governmental ethics, or, or ethics isn't the right word, but, but beliefs, <laughs> to be a follower of Jesus. Listen, I once read this in a book. There, this, there's a church in Texas, okay, Texas. Um, big church in Texas, and they were hosting exchange students from Vietnam. And when the, this pastor of this church, and when this exchange student from Vietnam came, her parent was the, basically what amounts to the chief justice of their Supreme Court. And this, this Vietnamese wo- uh, a young lady comes to faith in Jesus in Texas at this church. Miraculous story. And so dialogue's happening between her and the pastor. She's getting ready to go back to Vietnam. And he's thinking her whole worldview has changed, right? Basically, she's come to, to faith, so she's now going to be an American Christian. And she basically says to him how she's going to go back to Vietnam and be the best communist she can be. And he's blown away by it, right? How is that possible? But listen, to follow Jesus does not mean adopting a political ideology. It just doesn't. Right? Both sides, and no matter what, if there's two parties, if there's 17 parties, they don't get everything right. Okay? There are certain issues where I believe if you're a follower of Jesus, there are issues that you you say, okay, these are, are right and wrong. But that does not mean that everyone comes into the same level of discipleship and accepts the same thing. To be a follower of Jesus is not to pass a political litmus test. Right? You do not have to be a Democrat to be a follower of Jesus. In the same way, you do not have to be a Republican. You do not have to be an Independent. You do not have to be a Libertarian. You don't have to, there's so many of these, I don't even know what they are anymore. You don't have to be one. You have to be centered on Jesus. Friends, what we need is people with a biblical ethic and a gospel-centered worldview who enter into the political arena rather than political animals who enter into Christian faith. It's wildly different. Wildly different. In the same way, there's no political litmus test. Can I also say this? There are no national litmus tests. Friends, there is a grave danger in marrying anything to the gospel. Be it a political party, or be it a national identity. The gospel of Jesus is not a national reality. It is not an American thing. How do we know this, even, even though it should be obvious to us? Think of the Apostle Paul. Basically, most of his writing in the New Testament is to tell Jewish people that 
the gospel of Jesus does not have a national identity. It's not a, an Israel thing. It's not a Jewish thing. And when we marry the gospel to our cultural identity, we are swimming in very, very, very dangerous waters. I'm just telling the truth. Fourth thing. Let's be positive for a moment. We need to exercise dual citizenship, right? So many people say, well, Paul says we are citizens of heaven, so let's just get out of this place. Well, no. If you read the book of Acts, you realize that Paul is also a citizen of the Roman Empire, and he uses it, right, to accomplish his mission, always. And so really, I think the Pauline thing here to do is to be dual citizens, and it comes right out of Jesus' command. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, give to God what is God's. That is... You need to be a good citizen of the place where you abide. If you, if you live in the city of Bethlehem, you need to be a good citizen there. What do good citizens do? They're civil. They live with respect to the authority over them. They vote. They care about what's happening in their place. They're not just ambiguous to it. They actually know things that are speaking up to them. They're actually calling people to live in the right way and, and governing people to, to function in the right way. But their higher authority is their citizenship in an eternal world. That is the kingdom of God. This is the call on our lives. Right? You belong to God before you belong to anyone else. But in this world, there is human authority over you. And we need to be subject to it. One, so that we're careful to accomplish our mission but two, in a strange way, when you live that way, it actually makes possible to accomplish your mission that much greater. Because we know that how you live speaks way louder than what you say. And so how does Paul end this? What is the source of living this way? How do we accomplish this? Verse 8, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. <clears throat> For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law of God. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, whatever other commandments they may be, are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to your neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Paul's command, submit to human authority. His rationale, God and his sovereignty has established them. They're set in place to uphold good and deter evil. And listen to your conscience. Do the right thing. The basis the teaching of Jesus himself. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give, give to human authority what is human authority's. Obedience, honor, and respect. But give to God what is God's. Service your life and your worship. You only live in disobedience to human authority when those things are at stake. And for practical implications, let's always remember that human authority will never save you. That we cannot legislate in a local church 
or in the Congress of the United States, spiritual faith. That we need to be careful to hope in the right thing and to place our full effort in the right thing, the call of God to make disciples and be ambassadors of his gospel in this world. And when we mix things with the gospel, we swim in dangerous waters that oftentimes end us in believing a heretical gospel that just isn't true. Friends, the gospel is Jesus plus nothing. Is not Jesus in an American flag? Is not Jesus in a certain voter ID card? In the same way it isn't Jesus in the other voter ID card or Jesus in some other national flag. It's just Jesus. So live as dual citizens. Be a great citizen of this world. Be a great citizen of this church. Be a great citizen of your family. Be a great citizen of your city, of your state, and of your country. But ultimately, your citizenship lies as children of God in the kingdom of Jesus himself. And you will be apt to accomplish this if your heart is given to love those around you.